HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we are joined by Dan Keeling, one half of Noble Rot, to talk about their new book, Wine from Another Galaxy. We talk about the comparisons of wine and the music industry, the Noble Rotters road trip, and how their first wine list was like putting out their first record. Later in the show, we're joined by Adam Schatz of Landlady to discuss his new record that's coming out later this month. We discuss the creative output during the pandemic, his early adoption of the sourdough craze, his tour food blog that takes you from point A to point B while on the road with your band, stopping at all the delicious spots along the way, and his relentless year of learning using a Randy Newman song as a backdrop. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes on HRN. We talk about food. About music with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Took an hour off my day at the top, holding breath cannot prevent the stomach drop.
and my friend have to die Why do we fix our focus on the lights That we can't see, we can't know Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Brosnitz. Uh, we are joined today by Dan Keeling of Noble Rot. Dan, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. Uh, congratulations on the book. Um, but before we get to that, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork. Um, a lot has been said about your previous music career that we don't need to cover today. But I'm curious to ask you of why you think so many people from the music industry, either from labels or from bands, end up in the world of natural wine? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it comes down to food and wine being, you know, sense-related, music, obviously, sense-related, art, you know, film. If you're that way inclined, you're probably going to be into all of these things. And I think maybe people of Generation X probably made a few quid in the music industry and then they could afford to go to restaurants and then they got obsessed by something else because the best people that I've met in the music industry have all been obsessives. Uh, the people running great labels and uh, doing, doing good things, bands, you know, they're obsessed about, you know, playing the guitar or, or whatever. So that's probably why. Um, one of the things that's covered in your books is uh, a really strong comparison between record album covers and uh, wine labels. What have you found uh, that's analogous between the two of them, both in the approach and the aesthetic? Oh God, you know, you know, natural wine, uh, for want of a better term, kind of busted the whole thing wide open with the label design. So, you know, it's such a broad subject, but um, 
it's so funny natural wine a lot of natural wine producers or some natural wine producers will really try and interpret their their ethos for life through the the colorfulness or the 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 kind of um the the anarchy maybe of their labels as well and that's kind of similar in music i think it's it's a bit like nailing your colors to the mast um you know so many people nowadays they probably get into a bottle of natural wine because of what it looks like and they can go home and show their friends which in some ways that's as good a reason as anyone any to do it you know um and then you look at kind of old uh labels from people like mouton rothschild um who did a different label every year and have used some fantastic artists. So again, it's, it, it depends who the person is making the wine, if they're artistic minded or if they're not. But like music, it's funny that a lot of the wines I really love probably don't have much of a label. They've probably got the most boring label. And that was always the same at the label that I worked at, the record label. Because when you got a demo that had been sent in and it had fancy packaging, the music was probably poor. And the ones that were just sort of some, someone scrawled on it like a two-year-old, then it was always the best one. You wanted to sign it. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's definitely a part of your experience is what the bottle looks like, you know. Uh, going back to the inception of the magazine, 2013, what was the current landscape of wine writing? And what gap did you see in it? that you felt that you and your partner, Mark Andrew, could fill? Yeah, um, around that time, there was a magazine called Fire and Knives um, run by a guy called Tim Hayward, who is now the Financial Times restaurant critic. And that wasn't necessarily a wine magazine, it was a food magazine, but it was it was that DIY kind of fanzine type thing that I'd seen before in music uh, with with like magazines like Jockey Slut magazine, which was in Manchester, which was a dance music magazine, which I used to write for when I was at college. And, you know, Junior Boys Own, uh, Andy Weverell and all that crew used to do. Um, so I saw Fire and Knives and my partner Mark saw it as well. And we were like, this is really interesting. It was beautifully made. It was obviously home produced and it was a thing. Of, it was from a place of passion rather than commercialism. It didn't have any adverts. So that kind of got us thinking, well, you know, if they can do it, then so can we, and no one's really doing that in wine. So at the time, you'd have Decanter magazine in the UK, um, which was, there's a guy, Stephen Spurrier, who was the guy who set it up, and he died three days ago, um, which is like a massive loss to the, to the wine community because he was just such a brilliant communicator about wine. And around that time, Decanter was probably still quite a good magazine and had lots of lots of different writers that were that were good and established and very knowledgeable but they didn't talk about it necessarily in the way that we would talk about it we wanted to try and talk about it in the way we talked about music and uh art and films and they would maybe talk about it a little bit more like it was in isolation you know what are you going to give this wine out of 100 points to park away you know list a few you know what does it smell of and that to us just kind of went against what we loved about wine, uh, the escapism of wine. It was kind of, it was a bit like listening to a record and trying to identify all the different simps on it, you know, or what, what, what's that guitar? And that's just nerdy. It's just, it's not why we want to do it. We want to listen to a, an amazing piece of music because it, it takes you somewhere else. So that's kind of what we thought we could do. And 
the other thing was when we got together, uh, Mark and I, and started thinking about a magazine, we had both been reading Adventures on the Wine Route by Kermit Lynch uh, from California. And Kermit, you know, he's a brilliant writer, and he also writes with a sense of humor as well as an opinion. And it wasn't all about reductive kind of reducing wine down to components. It was about culture. It was about people. It was about places. And that's what we wanted to do. And that's, I think, what part of the aim for the book is, is the people and the places and communicating about them to, to other people and being hopefully inspiring them to go and drink those wines as much as we want to go and drink those wines. Starting a magazine would be enough. I mean, it was, I don't want to say overnight success, but it was so incredibly well received. Would have been fine, but you're like, let's keep going. How about we open up our own restaurant and wine bar? When you were putting together your first wine list, what were some of the considerations that you, that you had? Uh, were you comparing it against anyone? Was it your own personal high standard? What, you know, consider it like a first record almost. Because no one was asking for it. You had all the time in yeah. the world to do it. What were you? What thoughts went into it um, before you put it out into the world? Yeah, the number one thought, which is still is the number one thought now, is do we want to drink these wines? You know, we want to be able to sit and stand by every single wine on the wine list and drink it and drink the one next to it and, and love it. So that's the, the first thing. You know, we went to Paris just before we opened the first Noble Rot and we did a bit of a scouting trip going around all the uh, wine bars and restaurants. Places like Vivant was a big inspiration for us and Clown Bar. This is before we'd actually got the property. And um, we came back, you know, very inspired, but a little bit um, deflated because we thought there's no way we're going to find a period um, building like these places in London because they've all been bombed by Nazis or turned into Costa Coffees. But we luckily we did. We found something from 1709 and uh, on Bams Conduit Street, which really fitted the bill. So that was that was great. But going back to the, the wine list, you know, a lot of those places I've just mentioned, like Vivant and Clown Bar, they're natural wine bars and that's all they would sell. Um, we love a lot of natural wine. We don't like all natural wine because I think it's like any kind of wine. There's a, there's a very small part of it that is really well made. And but so, and we, we also wanted to put like first growth claret on there because we love that as well. So normally those those two worlds are a little bit kind of, you know, they don't really mix. But to us, we just we just that's kind of what we wanted to do. We wanted it to be eclectic. We want it to be like the Balearic of, uh, of the wine world. Yeah, so um, and then it was always about making sure the price points are right because you want the wines for nerds and you want the wines if you can afford to come in and drink Armand Rousseau Chambertin that's great but that's a tiny part of the population and that's you know a very very expensive wine so you've got to be offering amazing wines for you know 25 pounds and under you've got to make sure your house wine is killer and that is really hard that's the kind of hardest thing to do with putting together a wine list is your house wine um you know you, you, when it gets down to sub five pounds you're trying to find the wine a lot of it's going on duty a lot of it's going on the bottle the transport there's there's not much left over for the for the actual wine so that's still the holy grail and we've got a, a white wine for lambs uh, for both of our restaurants that we also sell to other shops called chin chin which took on a bit of a life of its own over lockdown it's a vina verde 
Um, you know, we did our own label. It's really light, refreshing, a bit spritzy, and it seems to really connected with people. You do serve a wide range of clients from the very high end wine whales down to people who are maybe just getting into it and the magazine deals with it collecting adventures um how to you know we all the way up to people who are just like i will never drink this i will never drink this vintage i will never go <laughs> below this certain price point one of the quotes I, I got from you was that you're always trying to create space for new wines so how do you do that like how mm. do you get people to open up their palates um, and their minds to something, whether they're new or they're, they're set in their ways. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think probably one that our sommeliers would be better placed to answer because they do that on a, on a daily basis. You know, when you talk to somebody about Tenerife wine, I mean, we, we kind of got into Tenerife a few years ago. Um, this resurgence, this renaissance of uh, viticulture on the island. And in the UK, I don't know about the States, but Tenerife is known for package holidays and not particularly salubrious package holidays. So when you talk to someone about Tenerife wine, they're looking at you like, you know, you're trying to pull a fast one. So in the past, I think back and I remember like seeing friends and saying, you've got to try this and them having that look on their face. So it's it's a slow process for some people but then you have other friends and other people who who want to try something new so it's about the mindset of the person there's nothing wrong with coming to a restaurant or a, or a wine shop and you know that you just like bordeaux and you just want bordeaux and that that's fine but it, i think people are more open than ever to try new things that's partly to do with price as well so many classic wine regions have escalated in price but then also, there's other classic wine regions like Muscadet, for example, that you can still get for a pittance that offer amazing value. So um, you've got to read your customers, I think, and um, you don't try pushing something to, to somebody who's really not interested, who just is set in their ways. But it's interesting because, as you know, there's so many different areas coming on. It, it almost feels like every month there's another country stroke area that's been rediscovered and there's like some 30-year-old vigneron who's, you know, got a small loan and is up a steep mountainside making amazing wine. So it's one of the most amazing times of wine ever. It's like his great-great-grandmother had it and it was lost and then the deed was found. And it turns out there is like a patch of 80-year-old vines and the soil is perfect. It's just got some bad topsoil. And then you're like, <laughs> wow, like a- this is the new <laughs> – you're like, wow. And then yeah, you're on yeah. a plane. Um, that, yeah. And it wasn't enough for you guys just to have a restaurant. And the second restaurant opened last year. But you also started an import company. Yeah. Why? <laughs> what, what, what were you not getting from your you know, fellow countrymen importers that you needed to start your own? And, and what was that process? Well, Mark, my business partner in Noble Rock, his background is as a wine buyer. So he would be out finding producers and working with producers for a, for a merchant. And obviously my background's in A&R, which is the same thing, but just with musicians. So I think we naturally <laughs> both gravitate towards let's get to the grassroots because the grassroots is the really interesting place to be, you know, talking with vignerons, being in the vineyard. Once you stand there, with those people in that place you you understand it a bit more so 
I think that was the first thing. The second thing was it was an opportunity. We were buying uh, wines on the continent. We would buy cellars. We would buy at auctions, and then we would bring the wines back. And um, there were just opportunities came up to work with great people that you know we couldn't turn down. You know, one of our first clients was Jean-Marc Rouleau in Merceau, who had become a friend, and uh, his wines are you know some of the best on the planet. And that you know we couldn't. That was like having Radiohead on your label. You know, they, it's like them signing to XL after EMI. And then there was people like Ules Collan, Olivier Collan in uh, Champagne, same thing. And from there, you, you meet you meet other people and you taste other wines. And I mean, I love the importing side of it because you're spending time in the place where it comes from, you know, the source. So that's that's the the really exciting part of importing. And the restaurant bit, obviously, that's um, that's a whole different discipline, and has many, many, many more moving parts. And is fraught with all the things that we know about being a restaurateur. So, yeah, two different things. Um, we're going to take a quick break and play a song from the archives. And then we're going to be back to talk about your new book, Wine from Another Galaxy, here on Snacky Tunes. As we mentioned, you have a book that just came out in the States, Noble Rot, Wine from Another Galaxy. You brought up Kermit Lynch's Adventures on the Wine Route, which is just reads like a you just wish you could have gone with him. Uh, it's mm-hmm. like a guy just like, you know, on on the path, having the best adventures. I know that he is demure in the book about how it's work, but it sounds pretty fun. Uh, mm-hmm. You two have a similar Rotter's Road Trip, uh, which is the second half of the book that has so many tabs in my browser open. It's like, I got to get this one. I got to find this one. I got to, I got to get this person. Tell me about the road trip. How was it put together? I want to believe it was one long, amazing <laughs> sojourn, but I can't imagine that your livers um, could have yeah. held up. But how did it get put together? And, and what was the, 
what are some of the highlights and, and maybe a couple lowlights as well? I mean, I would like it to be one long trip too, but I think it's a bit artistic license. You know, the road trip in all truth started around February 2014 when Mark and I went on our first wine visits together and we went to the Jura. Um, there's a there's a, a festival there that they do every year called uh, Le Percy uh, de Van Jeune, and it's held outdoors in February in the Jura, which is one of the coldest fucking places in the world. Um, so we went there and that, that was it. We started doing visits together. We went to see Pierre Ouvenois. We went to see, um, you know, quite a few other Jura vignerons, Stefan Tiso. And then over the course of the, the, the next seven years, we've, we've been going away every two months to different, different wine regions. And these are places that we're discovering for the first time. Cause you know, you, you read Rioja on a bottle, but until you go to Rioja, I have no idea what Rioja looks like or Ribera Sacra. Or even Burgundy, you know, the first time you go to Burgundy and you stand in Givry-Chambertin and you go, fuck, this is where this wine is actually from. So um, we've been doing that and writing a lot for the magazine, done a lot of interviews. Some of the material has been printed in the magazine and rewritten and kind of made to flow altogether. But really to, to do it like we've done it just takes such a long time. And, you know, it's... And, and processing it as well because you go there you go to the Jura and they tell you they've got like X amount of grapes they make all these different styles of wine some growers have got 50 different cuvées from like two hectares of land or something silly and you just you, you can't you can't hardly process this information so um, yeah the answer is it's taken a long time to, to, to kind of put it together but I think that's the that's the best way for us to do it I know other people have done similar and they've done it in much more condensed version but like you say i don't think your liver can take too much of that so and it's no, a continu- it, as i say it just, reads beautifully like one long trip oh good good but there's so many bits in there that we haven't that we wish that we've got into the book like in the new issue of our magazine i've written about chianti and chianti was one of those wines that you know i'd had a few good chiantis and i really liked montevertine who I, that's why we went there to go and see Montevertine. But since going there, you realize that there's all these friends of Montevertine, um, like Monteriponi, like uh, Tenuta di Carlioni, and they're all kind of similar age to us. And they're making these most amazing wines, all organic. And it's just another like little world that we knew only a little bit about. So I wish we'd been able to get that in the book. And every time we go away, it seems like there's a whole other it's like when you go in a record shop and you look for craft work and then you work out that craft work was mates with David Bowie and then you go, oh, David Bowie, so he worked with Iggy Pop. So you kind of, that's how you do it with wine as well. It's just kind of related relations. I mean, it's interesting because growing up as a, you know, my brother and I are lifelong music fans. Sometimes when you find a band, you just kind of want to hold on to it for yourself. I mean, a lot of bands, you know, you want to shout from the rooftops, you're an A&R guy. But sometimes you just want to keep it personal. How do you yeah. balance that with the wine that you find? You know, I mean, some of these people are such hidden gems. They're making a handful of bottles. You know that you could probably import them, but you want to keep it for yourself. Like, where is the line that you draw um, between is, what's yeah. shared and what's yours? God, that's a good question. You know, sometimes in France, they've got a very different way of dealing with customers in restaurants because they will advertise wines on their wine lists. 
And then when you go to to want to buy them, they'll say, no, that's the owners and he's keeping it for themselves. Because that, you know, I, we couldn't live with ourselves if we did that in London. And we would, we would just get crucified if I put something on the list that was rare. And I said, oh, no, no, I'm keeping it. But it's a good question. Um, we don't hold back wines. We only hold, when we, with our wine lists, if stuff comes in, if we want to drink it, sure, we'll put a bottle aside and that'll be ours. But we don't hold it back in the cellar and not sell it to, to certain people. Um, you know, we're not kind of snobby selective like uh, I know that some places are a bit more so. So I think um, uh, you just have to just let it go, really. You know, you, there's so much great wine out there. It's just if you if someone discovers something and, and the prices escalate and, and it is like bands because at school, I remember buying like Nirvana bleach or whatever and someone saying, oh, oh, what's that you've got in your brown paper bag from the market? And I pulled it out and they said, oh, what, headbanger music or whatever. And then like two years later, they're the ones wearing the T-shirt and like going, and it's the same with wines, isn't it? You know, you get onto that wine early and then two years later, somebody around the other side of the world is paying 500 quid for it and you bought it for 20 pounds. And that, that is you just let those wines go. That's the answer. You know, there's some wines that, that literally I bought for 20 years ago. This sounds like such an old bloke's thing to say. You're 20 years ago. I bought this for 20 pounds. <laughs> but but this, this is, it's hyperinflation in the wine world. It's just crazy. So, yeah, um, easy come, easy go. The first part of the book is all about tasting, ordering, collecting. Uh, for people who have made a little bit of extra money and are getting into this, uh, it can get expensive very, very quickly. You can <laughs> spend all of your money on it. What are some tips that you have for people on who want to maybe not just go to the shop and drink it? How would you recommend they start collecting bottles and what should they be looking for? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would recommend starting off by buying six bottles of something rather i mean you can start off buying a couple here a couple there but it's really interesting when you actually buy six bottles of a wine that you really like and you can see how the wine develops over like two three years depends how quickly you drink it you might drink it in a week i don't know but also you can see there's bottle variation which is another very interesting thing about wine that no wine when you get into artisanal wine no bottles are exactly the same as the next but I would really just say just start with stuff you like because don't buy stuff because you think you should be. If you're not into natural wine, don't buy that. Um, buy buy whatever you want to buy. Um, so, yeah, that's how I would start. But also the flip side of that is just go and taste as much as possible. Make friends with the guy in the local wine shop who's got good taste. See what they're getting in and, and off you go. You also art directed the book, uh, which is like another hat to wear. When you were putting this together, and the photos are great, the illustrations are amazing. It's, it's really conducting a, an orchestra here because as you move through the book, you get different feelings. I, I've never gotten bored as I turn the pages, and it is 350 okay. odd pages. When you were giving it an aesthetic, what went into your mind? What did you want people to feel and experience while they were reading about things that they couldn't actually drink? Yeah, the second half of the book is much more photographic, as you've seen. So we were just very fortunate to, to work with such talented photographers and, and have them along on the trips with us. A guy called Benjamin Maman, a guy called Juan Trujillo Andrades, and uh, another guy called Tom Cochran with the main three. And what 
I think is really great about their photography is it has that kind of energy to it, especially Ben McMahon's. He uses a lot of flash. There's a picture in the book of Anselm and Guillaume Solos from Champagne. And um, I remember when we did the set, set up for that, there's a Sex Pistols uh, photograph. I think they're coming out of a phone box in London and they're pulling a can of Foster's Lager and it's just spurting everywhere. And I knew that um, Anselm was really into uh, like disgorging wine. And so we, we purposely went for a setup like that. And that's just something that doesn't really happen in wine media or food media that much. So it was really fun taking kind of influences and stuff I'd seen in music and then trying to put them with these vignerons who a lot of the time, like Salos, he's an artistic guy. When he talks about wine, he doesn't talk about it like a scientist necessarily. He talks about it like a poet, like a like an artist. So they, they were really up for doing stuff like that. And then the the illustration side of it, I guess it's kind of subconsciously we love stuff like Monty Python's Flying Circus. And, you know, we've, we've seen enough kind of uh, interesting graphics from, from album design and film and again take that you know wine should be this vibrant culture and i think that there's so many people who it's all crossed over so much more like you were saying earlier there's a lot of people who you know they would have been just into music and going out and night clubbing when they're 25 and you know i guess we're all a little bit stereotypical but as we get a bit older and you think god i can't stay up till six in the morning anymore what am i going to replace it with and you know you start learning about this other other side of life so it's bringing those influences into food and wine was was really interesting for us in the book, you discuss uh, hunting for mature wines, either going into different cellars or different art auctions. It brought to mind the scene from High Fidelity, uh, where Rob gets called and said, you know, there's this woman, husband's been cheating on her. Here's this entire cellar of record collections. You can take all the vinyl for 20 bucks. And I'm wondering if you have come across any moments, not particularly that, where you've just someone didn't know what they were sitting on and you were able to get into a collection or someone's cellar or heard any stories in the same way where people were found old vintages rare bottles etc um that were able to just you know un, an unbelievable find yeah um uh, we've we've got we've taken wines from cellars of uh, people friends that we know who've got unbelievable cellars and have put them together you know, in the 90s when a lot of the wines then were just cheap as chips and now have turned into icons. So we've got access to those kind of sellers. But in terms of that poor old widow whose husband's just died and has a load of, uh, you know, uh, Lafitte or, or whatever that she wants to sell for five for a bottle, we haven't found that. And, you know, we're much too nice of blokes to, to do anything like that. But that is a nice thought that finding people's sellers being able to have access to old wines that have been in one place and then stored with perfect provenance is, is the holy grail. And it's very hard to do. Um, you know, I love going to the old cellars and seeing what's there uh, and buying wine on the market, old wine, is fraught with these pitfalls that you just don't know where wine has been for the last 30 years, how many times it's been traded. If you could go to somebody's cellar and they say, oh, my husband bought it 30 years ago and it's been sitting there, that's kind of, that's the, the dream scenario, isn't it? That's, you know, 
it's like going to a record fair and finding all the records that you want for like five pounds or, or whatever, you know, which has happened in the past as well. So uh, a, a nice thought, Greg, a nice thought. Well, I mean, one could do, and if it does happen or you do hear a rumor, I would like to, I would, well, I guess if you're a nice person, you would just never tell, you would just quietly do it and be like, surprise, yeah. we've got some, we've got some rare ones. Um, but, but we have got, I, you know, I, buying an auction though, just to, just, just to finish off. I yeah. mean, that's where you can really pick up some, some bargains depending on who else is bidding. So I would say that, yeah, that, that can happen. How how does that work? I, I feel like there's so much knowledge out there now. Um, when it comes to auctions, are they are they private? Are they public? Like, how do you get that competitive competitive edge when everyone is looking at the same same thing? Yeah, it, auctions have been a bit different over the last few months because of lockdown. I think there's been a lot of people sitting in, and as lockdowns happened, a lot of the auction houses, the technology's got good enough that people can sit in their living room and bid on stuff. So we've seen over the last few months that prices have been quite high. Um, but I think it is a bit of a time of change for auction houses because of, of that, because of technology. You know, you're taking a chance when you when you buy at auction. You could have an amazing wine or you, they might have been badly stored and you're writing them off. So when we sell them in our restaurant, it's on, you know, we take the uh, risk. And the, the beauty of a restaurant for the customer is the bottle's open at the table it's off you don't pay for it whereas you know if you buy it for yourself you could have six bottles of something quite expensive and they're all going down the drain so you've got to know what you're looking for you've got to set you know your targets and mark my business partner like his his um you know does so much buying at auction traveling around you know we go to europe we look for sellers all over the country sellers in in europe as well so it's it's a constant hunt um before i let you go i want to get your thought on the current state of uk wine uh i've seen in some previous interviews it's not completely there yet but you might have some favorites um if i was coming and you wanted to share some hometown wine with me where would you point me to that you could would say would stand up to anywhere in the world or almost stand up to yeah um Last September, we did a competition, uh, English sparkling wine against champagne, blind. And we'd it was a repeat of five years previously. And the five years ago um, competition, an English sparkling wine won. We had half English sparkling and we had half champagne. It was a wine called Hambledon. Hambledon is down in um, Hampshire. Um, I think the guy who owns Hambledon, he worked with Paul Roger. But if you if you tasted that wine, I think you'd be really impressed. Um, it has, you know, the thing that a lot of English um, sparkling wine didn't have for a number of years was was reliable ripeness because obviously we're we're a bit more northern. But now I think that they, they've they've worked on things. You know, the temperatures have changed slightly, and this year we were impressed again. Um, a champagne one, Le Mondier Bernier, actually won this year. But uh, English sparkling wine came second. Uh, what, what was it? <laughs> I know it came third. It was Harrow and Hope, which is uh, in Marlow, which is a fantastic uh, little um, domain set up by a, a husband and wife. I think they're in their 30s and they're, they're just starting off, but they've done amazing work. Um, so I think you'd be surprised, but I don't think you get it in America, do you? I don't think you actually get much English 
sparkling wine there or have you, did you see it? Uh, that's why I wanted to ask you because I saw another interview with you and it came up and I was like, I've actually never thought of anything from there. Like, oh yes. I mean, obviously lagers and cider, but never like oh, I'm going to get my sparkling wine no. from anywhere in the UK. Um, yeah. I would. I mean, is is that actually is that in the future? You have the magazine. You did the restaurant, the importer, another restaurant. Are you and Mark just like gonna get a plot of land somewhere, and eventually it's just gonna be Rotter's own vintages? <laughs> well, you know, I think if we had you know ten million pounds in the bank, getting some <laughs> land in Essex or Kent or Hampshire, it's not a bad bet. But I think you really you're doing it for your your children or your children's children you know but i guess somebody's got to be you know the next louis roderer of 200 years time so uh i think it's an exciting thing to do but it's really a, it's something you do when you're when you're properly properly rich i think there's so many costs land is getting more and more expensive you know you've had a lot of investment in, in english uh, vineyards but it is exciting it's, it feels a little bit like the wild west if you found the right place the right soil you had the right philosophy you know i think um english uh, sparkling wine is still right at the start of this journey because the most exciting thing when i go to champagne is going to see the growers the small small producers and um i'd say that probably at the restaurant mark and i this probably makes this sound idiotic but we drink champagne the most because it's a day-to-day drink it's just it's a light it's not highly alcoholic and it always makes you feel good and the growers have you know they've, they've really pushed the boundaries and pushed the quality levels you know lower dosage drier wines instead of like you know more sugary and you know that kind of saccharin style which we're not really into so i think when the english growers scene comes through the, the people with that kind of philosophy it's going to be really really interesting it's just you need a lot of patience and a lot of money. So I, I don't know if the restaurateurs, we've got enough money. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question. As an A&R guy, I know that you have so many bands that you had just told people about, shoved in faces that maybe people didn't listen to you. Who, domain, region, anything that people are just not listening to you right now. This is the next wine. This is the next domain. This is the next area that, you know, get the $20 bottle now because two years from now, it's going to be 500. You'll be off to the next thing. Oh, gosh, good question. Hard to spot those kind of price increases. Um, for that that kind of uh, <laughs> increases, you've got to be looking at burgundy and the jura i guess fine but in 200 who's not who who do people need to be paying attention to that they're just not if they just listen to dan they'd be having a glass full of something great (laughs) yeah i think you know chianti for me going to chianti we managed to go in between the lockdowns and before i kind of associated chianti with quite a lot of commercial wines you know quite made and it was a real eye-opener. And you can still get Chianti for very, very reasonable prices, you know, when you compare it to other classic wine regions. And all the people that are in the new issue who I mentioned earlier, they're all organic. They're trying to make wines that are delicate, that have finesse to them rather than power and alcohol. 
So I would be looking at people like Monte Raponi. Uh, you can know their wines are so Burgundian in the terms of how they they have that sensuality and finesse, and they're they're not really expensive. But that might be they're not really expensive yet, you know, because as we know, global demand um, and very small production values, then you know the wines disappear. So, I, but I, you know, I really fallen in love with Sangiovese over the last few years um this kind of and i see a similar thing in the best pure Sangiovese as i see in red burgundy for example so that would be my my kind of tip for like complete value so before we go i would i've asked for a special request i would like for you to put together five wines and five songs as a pairing uh, ideally, it's starting from, you know, however you want to go with the big crescendo. And I'm curious how you would take people through um, comparing these two, the songs to the wines and where you see the overlap between the two. Okay, great. Um, well, I think I probably should start where I started in, back in 2013 when I wrote about matching records and wine in the first issue of Noble Rot. And haven't written about it since because uh, I don't know why. You can only do so many. But the first record that we did then was Frankie Knuckles' Your Love and um, a Red Burgundy by Freddie Mounier and Messini, which is a Grand Cru and one of the most ethereal and sensual of all of his wines. And I guess what I was getting at with that was the sensuality of when you listen to Your Love and it, you, you know, it, it kind of wraps itself around you and it, it is ethereal and and it kind of overlapped with the, the joy of, of red burgundy, I guess. So that was my match number one. Match number two, uh, Barbara Streisand and uh, Barry Gibb, guilty. Um, and, I mean, I, I can't say I love, I love Barry Gibb's uh, songwriting. I just think he's one of the best. And, you know, a, a little bit chintzy maybe as a record, um, a bit of a guilty pleasure. And I think the wine that I'd match it with is a guilty pleasure as well, which is George Vernet Cotto de Vernon Condria, which, you know, a bit blousy, quite rich, a little bit out of fashion, low acidity, but... I love to drink a Condria maybe a couple of times a year when you're in the mood for that. Nothing really can kind of match. And I guess it's the same with Barbara Streisand as well. My third one would be um, Hamilton Bohannon, Disco Stomp. Um, and I love Hamilton Bohannon. Um, it's just full of joy. And the wine that a record like that makes me think of is uh, Beaujolais. And one of my favourites is David and Michelle Chappelle uh, and one of their flurries. Um, so, yeah, that's just a complete, both of them are just a complete joy. My fourth match will be Napalm Death, Instinct of Survival. And I'm going to match that with Trump Winery Chardonnay. I mean, I think it's taste bud Armageddon and, you know, <laughs> musical Armageddon in a match made in hell or wherever. And my last match, and this is because how timeless they both are. And I think if I had a shout for my favorite ever record of all time, and my wife always asked me, what do you want played at my for your funeral? And I never know. I never, but I think it's probably Screamadelica by Primal Scream. And 
I can put that record on day after day after day after day and I just won't get bored of it. I just think it is timeless. And one of the wines I've had that's been the most timeless has been Chateau Latour, 1961. And at that at the age it's at, it still tastes like it was made, you know, five years ago. And I think it could go another hundred years. So those two are my kind of timeless finish. Perfect. Well, Dan, thank you so much. Um, where can people find your restaurants, find the book, find the magazine? Where can they go? All good bookshops. And, uh, you know, if you go to www.noblerock.co.uk, then we sell the book, we sell the magazine. We've got prints of the cover. You know, it's got all information about our restaurants as well. Great. Let's do it. Uh, we are going to take another musical break, play a song from the archives, and then we'll be back with Adam Schatz of Landlady here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. Come to me 
My name is Brandon Boy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Hello, and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I'm joined by Adam Schatz of Landlady. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Oh, thanks for having me. Yes, uh, congratulations on the upcoming fourth release. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been interesting to read your writing. By the way, you are a beautiful writer. I have oh, loved thank you. Your essays. It really uh, incredibly, means a lot. incredibly thoughtful. One of the things that struck me is creating in an almost solitary environment. Uh, you talk about that you can't write new songs until old, old songs are released. And entering into this cycle of record an album, tour, play it out, record an album. And the last year has effectively changed the interaction that you have or the kind of the cycle of the way in which you create art. So I'm curious about how you have adjusted your expectation in relationship to your creative process and then what you do with it when you're done completing the process. That's a great question. And it's um, one that changes every time because it's like I've I've taken enough time between official landlady releases where it's like if you put out a record every three years, it sort of means every time you're readjusting to a new climate that almost never is better. It's there's almost no situation where people are like, hey, guess what? They're like these things are good now. The only the only exception being Bandcamp actually which I kind of submit to the to the jury as being the only good company. I think they're, they're the, the only best. good company. We have we have done this show for many, many years, and I have never heard one bad word about Bandcamp. They're they're simply the best. Yeah, it's weird. It's there because they're not even they don't have to be the best, and they are, but they're all they're they're the only good one. Any other company mm-hmm. it's like I don't even think you can be a company and be good because of like the nature of what a company entails, which is thinking about money, which is bad. But your question was about um, making things and putting them out in this time more than ever. What's interesting, also every time I make an album, I'm like, this time I'm not going to sit on it. This time it's going to like come out right away and I'm going to be happy and it never happens. And so this one too, it was like we tracked it. Large, initially the band was together live for six days in the beginning of 2019. And then I sort of spent that whole year off and on finishing it up at my personal studio. And then, yeah, it was kind of like, all right, 2020 sometime, couldn't find a label. So I was going to put it out myself one way or another. And then it's that feeling hit coming in so many different forms of just like, I don't know when I would ever want to talk about myself again, <laughs> just given the way everything was, it's just, and truly for more than one reason. And I just like needed to let time go by. And so all to say, none of, none of that record that's about to come out was made during the pandemic. It was essentially finished right before any of this started. What I was able to do was use the extended time to think about visuals and work with some artists on that and really have the luxury of doing that without any sort of like outside pressure that says, okay, we need this. 
we need this now. It needs to be ready because that's almost always what happens. And you almost always end up with something you're not totally psyched about. Um, and so, yeah, it was just, I was, I was happy to be like, okay, I'm going to take the stimulus check. I'm going to immediately give it to someone else and then he can make a video and then we'll see how that can inspire the, the next stage of the visual world building. Um, but I don't know. Do you feel that this record due to the time that you had and the lack of pressure is a more complete version of a landlady record? It's your fourth, it's your fourth one because it didn't have the external cycle. No, I think it's all, it's all the same in that they're all different because each one is such a good document of who I am at the time and who I'm with at the time. The band has always changed a little bit, but it's always been a, a pretty good capture of human performance. Um, and I think each one is just growth. It's emblematic of growth of just being older as a person, as a human being, and then just how the relationships involved in the process overtly in a band and then behind the scenes, which lead to the songs becoming what they are. It just uh, becomes that. So I don't think it's any more complete. This is, yeah, it, it's just, again, it's different every time. I mean, this time we put it out ourselves and did it with the Bandcamp vinyl campaign, which was sort of a pseudo crowdfunding thing where you don't produce the physical stuff until it's the overhead is covered, which is actually such a dream. Cause again, you're not like sinking your own capital into it and then ending up with a thousand LPs in your basement, just kind of waiting for a flood to get you that sweet insurance money. Can we hear a song? Oh, sure. Let's, uh, what are you going to play? What are you going to play first? First, the first song I'm going to play. And this was a little tricky actually to pick songs because I, when I write songs for landlady, they inevitably become something that I think only can be played by the band. And there's always every record. There's usually one or two that I'll let spill over into my solo show. But for the most part, I just deem them unplayable for whatever reason. And so when I sat down to figure out which ones I would do for this time period, when I really can't play with each other, I was like, all right, there's three, I think only three, at least ones that I could play without totally, totally screwing up. So this first one is called AM radio and I'm going to try it alone. Great. Uh, Here we have landlady on snacky tunes. At least we were told the West was wild. AM radio on the dial. I bet if we closed our eyes so tight that the patterns look like light. Radio will be there 
types of musicians because you also have such a strong affinity for food Mm -hmm. Uh, i read that you've been to sourdough for seven years which is a very strong claim as most people have had less than a year under their posers posers but we welcome them we welcome all of them in it was um are people going to be still making bread when they like it's post-vaccine or how many people are going to stay true to the to their love of it i think the people who fell off already fell off because it's a thing okay. no one no one wanted it to go on for this long and so it's with any of it i feel like everyone's relationship with these things we're all on the same trajectory where it's like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna watch like movies all day i'm just gonna like do because this is we're gonna like pretend this is a cool thing where we get to just like be with our loved ones all the time or watch movies all the time whatever the reason and then as it slowly became real that we can't do that. Then you just start any sort of like fun pandemic habit. I think at this point is gone for everyone other than of course, you know, deep depression that'll stay with us forever. But it was fun. I I did actually truly enjoy all of the messages I would get over the first like three months or so of quarantine, just sort of seeing me as being some sort of sourdough whisperer from friends who knew that I did it because I posted it on, you know, Instagram a bunch in the past. And they're just like, hey, what uh what do I do? Does this working? Is this not working? And it's I was I was actually totally happy about it. And it's really fun to give people bread advice because it's actually kind of a complex and weird thing. You also were compiling a spreadsheet of places to stop while on tour under the name tour food, which oh, yeah. I have always wanted this. We, we've had this discussion come up over the years on snacky tunes about having routes that are maybe like an extra hour out of your way, but it's going to be the best barbecue or great falafel. Um, what is the the history of it and, and where is it now? Totally. Well, let me just say too, it's, you know, tour, tour food now that it's launched is 
It's me and my uh, two two close buddies, Charlie Ferguson and Luke Payenson. Um Luke and I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts together. Our band's playing together. And his mom is a food journalist and actually wrote for the Boston Globe. And then he was writing about food at a really young age. And then Charlie and I toured in a bunch of bands together, an Afrobeat band, Songo Junction. And that's kind of where I uh, did my first like real U.S. touring and then also like my first sort of bout of irresponsible eating while touring, which can only happen when you're like 22. When what, I get how do you those, define irresponsible eating? It's bar, it like barbecue every day, basically. Okay. Like when you're going to, you know, if you're, if you're hitting the South and you're like, okay, we're in these places, like we're in Charleston, we're in Louisville, we're in, we're in Birmingham, all these places. It's like, we got to do it. And I get, I do get these like Facebook memories every so often of some like disgusting looking plate of food. I was like, first of all, why am I, why did I put that on the internet? And second of all, the fact that I could get away with it then, because now when I tour, I just can't, I mean, especially when it's like nights when I'm singing and stuff, but it's, uh, I was, I was happy to get away with it then. But basically around that time, we started a spreadsheet. I just started an Excel spreadsheet because I wanted to keep track of places that we ate that were good and we shared it with other touring musicians and ton of ton of great people were on the spreadsheet um and we just like i would check in with it over the years and then more and more people would get added to it because i would invite people and then other people would invite people and it became this like really wonderful crowdsourced list of places to eat around the country that were sort of authorized by touring musicians and it's like you know not everyone not everyone has a trusted palate for that sort of thing, but we do, we, we eat everywhere. It's often the only thing in the day other than the show. And the show is like one hour long. So at most, so we're, we're spending more time each day eating than playing music, which is sad. And it's like, yeah, we, those of us who really value that time, just it, it felt like a cool way to share this information. And so last year, two years ago, um, 2019, I wanted to really turn this into an actual searchable database and a website that anyone could use. And so I got Charlie and Luke to go in on it with me and we just vetted all the places that were on there, reached out to regional experts to sort of pad it out. You know, if there's a city where we didn't have a lot of things or, you know, hit up my Richmond people and be like, what's missing that wasn't there before. And then, yeah, worked with a web designer to just make it a really easy to update thing. And we, yeah, we didn't have too much criteria other than that. We wanted you to be able to search by location, search by type of food, and then also plug in your route. So you could do point A to point B and then see on a map all the places that were along the way. And then we just put it up and we're excited to see what happened. And that was October of 2019. So I think it had a good like three months before nobody was on tour again. Did did anyone use it during the pandemic when people like weren't flying or were driving cross country? Yes. Um, and I was, which was awesome. Cause I was, we, I mean, when it all became clear, what was happening was happening. We were just so depressed. Cause it's like, man, we spent so much time checking all of these restaurants to make sure they were like open and real and the fear that they are all going to be closed by the time this is over was really a very sad thing and i 
sad for them and then sad for me who potentially wasted like months out of a year just looking at a spreadsheet. But it's actually I'm actually hopeful that the places we were spotlighting on these because we also set more or less a price limit of like $20 or under because we wanted this to be for everyone and it's, you know, there are definitely people who like to go on tour and engage with fine dining but it's like not that wasn't what we were trying to serve and there's also you know, those resources are available. You can find the best food in any city if you have no limits. But if you're at a venue and you're only walking or whatever, we we wanted to make something that was for those types of people. But I'm hopeful that actually a lot of the smaller places are going to make it through this in one way or another, either because they were better equipped for takeout or who knows, who knows why. But I'm hoping we don't have to start from scratch. But yeah, a lot of people crossing the country every so often would either write to me saying that they found a great place and were grateful. Or if it was, you know, kind of one of our representatives, they'd say, Hey, we found, we found a new place. You should add this to the, to the database. Amazing. Uh, can we hear another song? Okay. Let's, uh, let's do it. What am I going to play? I'm going to play. This is uh, another song off the new landlady album called landlady. And the song is called nowhere to hide. Shell, but the sound won't come out Whose opinion do I have to doubt All my food's gone bad again Give me a home where the lake hits the clouds Show me where the bottles get their name Turn to pieces, turn to grain I've been too lost for many a time
published an op-ed in the New York Times, which I highly encourage anyone listening to pause and read the op-ed, as we don't need to dissect it here, and you also did a very lengthy (laughs) Instagram Live about it. One of the things that popped out to me was the phrase, uh, you've had a relentless year of learning. Um, As you said, sourdoughs were maybe a trend that came and went, but it seems that the thing that didn't leave you was learning and specifically around learning this Randy Newman song. Um, and from, from practicing this song every day for an hour or two hours, I'm curious like what that repetition did for you as a musician um, and a lover of music and, and a songwriter and a performer and what you got from it in a way that maybe playing live shows or, or writing new songs maybe gave you different things or, or the same thing. That's an awesome question. Um, it, the beauty of learning other people's songs and especially by like really being strict with yourself about what learning how like how much you really want to learn the song. Cause when I was a kid learning covers, I would sort of go only as far as would make it easy for me to say I was playing the song. You know, if I'm going to, if I want to play Where's My Mind, I'm going to go to the Guitar Tabs website and look up what someone says the chords are, and then I'm going to say that's what it is, and I'm going to play it, and that'll be great. And then kind of going through music school and just being around people I admire and respect all the time and seeing how they learn and internalize things, it kind of pushed me to a place where I've gotten a lot of joy out of getting really deep into the intricacies of learning a song. And you just it's fun to push yourself almost to impossible lengths and be like, okay, how, how close can I really get to playing this exactly the way that Randy Newman played this? Or if I'm learning a, you know, Donny Hathaway song, can I learn his exact vocal phrasing on the live version of I love you more than you will ever know? Cause that's incredible. The way he sings that song is like so nuts. The way he throws the melody around 
and by kind of zooming in on really specific components of a song, you just, it, it becomes a part of you and it does it in an exciting way where I can't answer your question. I can't say what it does for me, only that it does something. And that's a, it's a beautiful thing because then pieces of these songs will come out in my songwriting and will come out in my performance and will come out in my listening and my ability to hear and understand what other people are doing after that. I mean, after spending like five months with the Randy Newman song, I moved on to this James Booker piece. James Booker is an unbelievable New Orleans piano player. And it's his version of the song on the sunny side of the street. And it's a stride like New Orleans style stride piano, which is impossible. And I've never played stride before. And so it took me so long to even get like remotely presentable, but the stuff I picked up from Randy Newman made that easier for me. Cause you can, your ear starts to recognize harmony and motion on the instrument a little bit better. And it's all, yeah, it's, it, it's instinct driven. You're just kind of like sharpening your, your internal instinct and aptitude and that I, I really never get tired of that. Well, I want to make sure we have time for one more song, but where can people find you? Where can they get the new record? Where can they get the old records? Where can they find your writings? Where can they get the travel food website? How do they, how do they get all of your universe? Oh, great. Wouldn't it be great if I put it all in one place, but it, um, so the, you can find all the new, I'm, I'm building a new place where all my fun stuff lives. So if you go to landladyland.com, there's some fun videos for the new songs. And there's a, a news feed where I'm going to start publishing a bunch of writing. I'm putting out a big essay there right when the record comes out. So that's a good place to go for that. Um, the food website is torfood.us for finding places to eat. And there's a submission section on that also, which has been, we were kind of the most excited about that where we were just saying, okay, we're going to do as much research as we can. But once we go live, people are going to send us what they think the best food is in between Pittsburgh to Cincinnati. And so we, we love hearing about that stuff and doing the research. Um, and yeah, a lot of my writing lives on the talk house. If you go to the talkhouse.com, you can find a bunch of my essays under my own name. Awesome. Uh, what is the last song you're going to play for us? The last song is called Tooth and Nail. Um, and yeah, you can get the new record on Bandcamp, landlady.bandcamp.com. That's all the, all the stuff. Give us, give us all your money and we'll send you, we'll send you all the good, the good things. Amazing. Um, I want to thank our food guest, Dan Keeling from Noble Rot, whose new book is out now. You can get it everywhere. Adam, thank you so much for joining us, and we will be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes here on HRN. Hearts has been broke And all of my numbers are lost in seven Could be a gift If this were any other game Do take your time When Take the elevator down, feeling you 
This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.